The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. It's been over a month since we've been talking about the life of David, and so um, I want to sort of get us up to speed as to where we've been up to now. And so um, I'm going to sort of unpack what I had done a few messages earlier uh, in this series. big chapter of his life we could describe as his youth. And as I had mentioned before, uh, the first 20 years of David's life was basically a charmed life. Um, He began his relationship with God as a shepherd boy, tending his father's sheep. And there he met God in such powerful ways, even as a child. And he said that God even helped me to overcome the bear and the lion uh, because the power of God was on me when I fought these wild animals. And, And we saw how even as a young child, he was chosen among all of his other brothers to be the anointed next king of Israel. And then next thing you know, he finds himself in the palace of the king, playing music to soothe uh, Saul's troubled soul. And the climax of those years of his youth would be to take on this giant Goliath and would go on to become Israel's champion when no one else was courageous enough to face Goliath. David, as a youth, uh, met him on the field of battle and, and, and overcame. But then we enter into what could be called his wilderness years, which would last for approximately a decade. And that's when his entire life would turn upside down. And it began with Saul making multiple attempts on his life, basically trying to kill David because of his jealousy of him. And so it forces David to run for his life in the wilderness, where he will spend the next decade hiding in caves with a bunch of outlaws and misfits. Um, And in his final year and a half in the wilderness, he will settle down in enemy territory, living among God's people's enemies, the Philistines in this town called Ziklag. And it's only when Saul dies that David begins to see any rays of hope that his life could be any better than what it was in the wilderness. But the problem is that even after Saul's death, uh, it wasn't easy going right away. It would be about a seven-year period of what we could call the civil war years. Because David is actually crowned the king of Israel, well, actually Judah, but he is now ruling over a divided kingdom. And so for the next seven years, Uh, David is struggling with all of these different issues that are arising as a result of that. He is ruling Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, but the ten northern tribes of Israel are not on his side with him. They're not with him. And so basically uh, he is dealing with just one headache after another during this period, even as king in Hebron. And the problem is a lot of his troubles are coming from his own family members these three nephews of his that are in the Bible called the three sons of Zeruiah, which is his sister. And so if it was just hired staff, he could fire them. But this is family, so he can't just get rid of them. And so they cause him just this repeated grief in his life because of all the crazy stunts they're pulling off. 
And so during this time, there's political maneuvering, there are power plays, there's deception, there's murders happening, and then there's revenge killings, and all of this is going on. But what we could say about these civil war years is that it wasn't all bad. In fact, as the civil war years go on, we begin to see David coming into his strength. One of the things that he will do during this time is he will unite all 12 tribes under his authority. And then as he unites the tribes, the next thing he does is he demonstrates once again his military prowess when he defeats Jerusalem that was at that time being controlled by these people called the Jebusites. And so he will overtake Jerusalem and capture that city and he will turn Jerusalem into Israel's capital. And then after that, this king of Tyre named Hiram builds David a palace so that he could have a home that is more befitting a king. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11 to 12, it says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. It's interesting that this, this issue of the cedars just keeps coming up. And I, the whole point of that being is that these cedar, these huge cedar logs represent a grand structure, luxury, opulence. And so the message here is that the house that was built for David must have been impressive. It must have been amazing. It was built with cedars. Um, And then lastly, as we saw in one of the final messages I preached before we took the hiatus from the series, David would bring the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place at the center of Israel's worship. Okay? So all of these things are happening now that is basically symbolizing David coming into his strength. We now are brought into sort of what we could call the final chapters of David's life, which we could entitle his reign. And so everything we're going to cover today uh, to the end of the series is going to look at this sort of last chapter of David's life in which he reigns as king over a united nation of Israel. All 12 tribes gathered together under his leadership. So David reigned as king of a divided kingdom for seven years in Hebron, but now he is going to reign for 33 years in Jerusalem as the uncontested, well, almost uncontested king, because we're going to get to Absalom a little later. Uh, But he will be king, therefore, for a total of 40 years that he's going to reign. That's kind of a summary of David's life up to now as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as you think about David's life, that day as a child when David was anointed, I don't think he could have imagined what a crazy journey he would go on in order to become king. It would be almost 20 years from the time that he was anointed as a youth by the prophet Samuel until he would finally sit on David's throne, on his throne over Israel. But now that day has finally come for David. He has received what God had promised him all of those years ago. And it's, it's really amazing to think how far David has come from those days of living as a fugitive, hiding in one cave after another, 
like an animal. And now living in a palace in his capital city with a kingdom united under his leadership. And so as I read first, Second Samuel chapter 7, the scene that I picture in my mind is of David as a powerful king sitting in the patio of his palace overlooking the hills of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and there by his side is the prophet Nathan. And I, I don't know why, but I picture them eating falafels and drinking iced tea or something. I, I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know if falafels were around that long. Um, but this is how this chapter begins in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. What's happening here is David is basically embarrassed for God. When he compares his extravagant palace that he's now living in to this ratty old tent that the Israelites had used since the days of Moses to store God's ark. And so he reveals his plan to Nathan that he says, I want to build a proper house for God. That's my wish. That's on my heart. Nathan's reply is immediate in verse 3. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So as Nathan points out, David has been riding on this wave of one success after another. And it's clear to Nathan that God is with David. It's as if all of David's instincts have been right so far. And that David can do no wrong. And so to Nathan, it must have seemed like one of those decisions that was so obvious once it was stated. It was so God-honoring that it didn't even really feel like there was any further discussion or prayer needed. So Nathan just goes, go for it, man. (laughs) Do it. It's awesome. It would be like if someone came to me and said, Pastor Steve, I just won the lottery, the, the Powerball. And I want to give half of my winnings to ICC so that we could build an amazing facility to further God's work here. I don't think I would say, why don't you pray a little bit more about it? I would say, amen. Praise God for that. Write that check, you know? Because why would God oppose such a move like that, right? Um, So they both go to bed that night, really excited. They're going to build God's temple in Jerusalem, and it's going to be awesome, and God is going to be so proud of them and so happy. But it goes on in verse 4, and it says this, But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is basically rebuking them and saying, Not so fast. When did I ever ask you to build me a house? When did I ever ask anyone to build me a house? Now, 
This isn't the main point of this passage, but I think it's worth pointing out uh, how easy it is for us to fall into the same trap that David and Nathan fell into. Thinking that a decision is so obviously God-honoring that it hardly even seems worth asking God whether it's his will or not. And I think one of the things this passage does teach us, there are decisions we need to make we need to make in our life, but it's this sense that all of our decisions ought to be made in a prayerful spirit, opening our hearts to hearing from God and saying, what is your will in this, God? In our limited, finite wisdom, this looks like a great thing to do. But is this really your will, God, for us? I think about even that proposal that we had uh, about a year back when we were looking at this building that looked like it was just a godsend, 54,000 square feet of space for a church and a price that was within our budget, you know? And it felt like all the lights were green telling us, buy this property. And yet, as we prayed as a congregation, we walked away from it, didn't we? Because there was just this sense, wow, that'd be, imagine all the things we could do in this building, even as a dance studio. We are talking, youth crew could start a dance troupe. and all this. Like, we're like, Our minds were running like crazy, thinking of all these crazy things we could do. But somehow, as we brought this before you as a community, and as we prayed together about it, we just sensed that the Lord's leading was not that way. And so we didn't make a move on that property. I think that's something so vital to the walk of a Christian. What is your will, God? This looks right to us, and by the numbers it makes sense. But what is your heart for this, God? Because you know what we do not understand and what we do not know. Another thing that I want to make before I go on to the main point of this passage is this. What I see is so beautiful in God's reply to him is this, is, listen, I don't seek my glory in a building (laughs) to try to say, yeah, build me something so the world will know how awesome I am. But instead he says, I live in a tent because my people have been living in tents. And what God seems to say is, I am where my people are. I am with them always. I never leave them. And so it's not a big deal. It's not a big dent to my glory if I live in a tent because where my glory comes from is my people and I living in their midst. It's basically God is saying, I am always with my people. It's interesting. uh, I heard this story, and I don't know if it actually happened or if it's just one of those stories that gets told, but uh, of this guy that was complaining once about feeling like God was so distant, so uncaring in his moment in his life when he was in such need. And he basically said, I feel like every time I pray, my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and falling to the floor in this room. To which this wise person replied to him, you know, that's okay if your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling because God's in the room with you right there. Even if you feel, in other words, like God is not near, like your prayers are going unheard. What I see in this passage is God is saying, I am always present with my people. Well, through Nathan, God tells David what God is going to do for him. And this is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. In fact, quite a few Old Testament scholars argue that this second Samuel chapter 7 is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. 
And this is what he says starting in verse 8 to 11. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So God basically tells David, ever since you were a little boy, I've been watching you. When you were watching your father's sheep. And I am the one that called you out of those pastures to become a king. In fact, a great king. And God says this, the entire reason why I have done all this is not for your sake alone, David. I am going to make of you a great name because of my love for my people. And the entire big picture of your life, David, is that I am going to carve you out in the history of mankind to be a great king so that out of your kingship can arise a place of hope for my people, a place of rest in the midst of a world that is hostile, a place of security where they can find safety. And he goes on in verse 12 to 16 and it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's interesting. David wanted to build God a physical house, a temple. But God says, I am going to build for you a house, David. But the house that David, God was referring to was not a physical house. When God said, I will build your house, he was talking about David's family. And what God meant was this. Through you, David, I am going to establish a royal line of kings that is never going to be broken and is going to go into eternity. And what is interesting about this is that God's promise to David and his commitment to him is total and absolute. In other words, it is an unconditional promise that God makes to David. If you look at it carefully, there are no conditions that God places on David that says you must fulfill these things for these things to come true. It's an unqualified promise to David that says these things are going to happen. And in fact, God says, you know, your sons, some of them are going to rebel. They're not all going to be great kings like you're not actually all that great a king, you know. But he says, but when they become unfaithful, 
I will remain faithful to your descendants and I will even discipline them and bring them back to me. And I, by my faithfulness, will do whatever it takes to make this promise to you happen. In other words, God says, my faithfulness alone will secure this promise to you. It's interesting, I've been sort of dialoguing with a number of you about this David series since we started some months back. And one of the comments that several of you have made to me is, this series has kind of unsettled you a bit. <laughs> because what it's done to you, it's, it's sort of taken David as a hero of faith, and it's kind of knocked him down a few pegs in your mind. And it's because, I think, um, we've been looking at some stories of David that have not been putting him in a very flattering light. You know? um, there's been undeniable moments of brilliance and times when David has displayed, displayed great faith, like when he slew Goliath. But we've also seen David act in some pretty atrocious ways, some ways that are very unbecoming of a king. And all of this has sort of led some of you to wonder as we're going through the series, like, I'm a little nervous about what my view of David is going to be <laughs> when we're done with this. And it ends up leading us to sort of this place of, so what's so great about David? What's so great about him? If he was really no better than us. Why was David singled out to be one of the most important people in the entire Bible? Why is his name referred to more than almost any other character in the Bible? And it's not because he lived such an exemplary life. It's not because his accomplishments were so great or unusual. God makes it clear in this passage, David, you will become great and your name will be remembered in all of history, but it is simply because of this, because I have chosen you to receive one of the greatest promises I am ever going to give to a human being. And that's it. That's it. In other words, this is what God is saying to David. David, I make an unbreakable commitment to your family to establish my kingdom that will last forever through your royal line. This, in theological terms, is known as the Davidic covenant. A covenant is, in essence, a promise, a commitment. And the generations that would come after David, all of his descendants would realize the significance of this promise because they kept referring to it, especially when they began to question whether God was really for them. They would go back to the promise made to their forefather David, and they clung to it as something sure from God. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 2, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which is David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, one of the things that we could say is this. The promise that was made to David was the fulfillment, actually, of another promise that was made to another man many years earlier by the name of Abraham. 
If you look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, God promised Abraham to make of him a great nation with many countless descendants. And as many of you know, that nation would come to become Israel. And like the promise made to David, the promise made to Abraham was also unconditional. And what God says to Abraham is, I will bless you so that in turn, you will become a blessing to others. And then he explains it further in the very next verse, in verse 3, by by saying, through this very blessing that I'm going to give you, all the families of the earth are going to receive a blessing from me. This would become known as the Abrahamic covenant, which says, I will bless you so that you will become a blessing to the whole world. And God will repeat this promise over and over to Abraham throughout the chapters of Genesis. Genesis 17, verse 5 to 7 is another example of this affirmation of this covenant. It says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so like David's promise, the promise to Abraham is, I am going to establish a kingly line through you. Kings will come forth from you. And like David, the promise to Abraham was to be an everlasting one that will carry on to eternity. And so when we get to the New Testament, why these Jews were so excited about the appearance of Jesus was they realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of every one of these promises they were waiting for. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, which is talking about Jesus. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for our Lord, for our glory, for his glory. I, I feel kind of, I cringe a little bit because I know at that pastor appreciation thing, I told you that the song I hate the most is, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. I, I don't like that song very much. But the verse that it cites is amazing, okay? Which is this one. It is basically saying every single promise that we've been waiting for as Jews, all of these thousands of years, have finally found their fulfillment in this one person, Jesus Christ. That's why the very beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of these covenants that were given to our forefathers. Luke chapter 1, 32 to 33, which our pastor Jared cited in his sermon last week, speaking of Jesus again. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. 
And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. At his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, what the Gospels tell us is that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the Messiah who was promised to bring salvation to the world. One of these verses that just absolutely blew me away when I was in college that I read was the Apostle Paul talking to Gentile believers in the church age to explain to them the Abrahamic covenant that was given to the Jews. And he says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Isn't that amazing? Paul is saying that when God gave the covenant to Abraham in Genesis 12, that was the gospel of Jesus Christ being announced in advance to the Jews. so that every nation on the earth will be blessed through this blessing promised to the Jews. In other words, if we have the faith of Abraham to trust in the promises of God, then we become heirs to this promise given to him. And as a Korean, the fulfillment of that promise came true in 1884. When this man named Horace Newton Allen, who's pictured there on the right, was a recent graduate from the Miami of Ohio School of Medicine. And he became a missionary to China in 1883, and he struggled there because all he was dealing with was opium addicts. (laughs) He couldn't take it anymore. And so his mission board said, there's this little peninsula called Korea. Why don't you go over there? and see if you might find God's calling for your life in that place. He's pictured here in Western clothing, but if you advance once on the slide, this is him going going native. I love that picture of him. (laughs) He's dressed in what's called a hanbok, the traditional Korean outfit, as this burly Westerner. They got to make a Halloween costume out of that. (laughs) that's, That's so awesome. Um, he ended up by the providence of God arriving in Korea right when a member of the royal family was deathly injured and was about to die. And as a doctor, he was able to bring healing on this man. And because of that healing, the royal family in Korea suddenly became much more open to the gospel than they ever would have been for an outside religion to invade their land. And it was through these early Scottish missionaries and Western missionaries in Korea that the church in Korea was planted. And it was through the ministry of these missionaries that my grandmother became a Christian when she was a Buddhist. And it was through her faith that my father was saved through her sharing the gospel with her son. And it was through my father's faith that I came to faith as a Christian 
and would one day go to travel to Kenya as a missionary doctor myself. And when I think about just this amazing chain of events and what God is doing in our world, what I could say is this, is that all of this was only possible because of one thing. It was God's promise. God's promise. In fact, what we could say is this. The entire Bible is the story of God's unbreakable promises to his people. You know, during Christmas time, I shared with you how when we often cite the love of God, it's not always a comforting message to a lot of us. And it's because for so many of us, our experience of love in this world has been one of broken love, of distorted love. And so when we say God loves you, it's not always a reassuring message to many of us. I I think the same is true of God's promises. Because I think many of us don't think very highly of promises. Promises are cheap. Many of us have experienced the pain of broken promises. But what the Bible says is God's promises are not like that. Because when God makes a promise, it is unbreakable. Unbreakable. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, which is today known as Columbia International University in South Carolina. And he would sit on the president's seat from 1968 to 1990. And during his tenure as president of this college, he doubled the enrollment of the school and brought it to national prominence. He was a nationally, even internationally recognized author of many books, and was an absolutely prominent and key figure in the global missionary movement back in the 60s and 70s, the 80s. And so it was to everybody's shock when in 1990, he informed the board of the school that he was going to resign and pretty much give up his entire ministry. And he said the reason why he was doing that was because his wife Muriel had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia and he needed to care for her. This was not met with warmth or love by the people around him. In fact, quite a few people were very angry with him, very upset, because they said, God is so obviously blessing you and the work of your hands. How could you abandon all of this just to care for your wife? And they were pressuring him to institutionalize her so that he could keep doing God's work. But McQuilkin refused. He pictured his wife in an institution and he said, no one would love her like I could love her and care for her like she needs care. And he said to them, there is something in life that is more important than a calling. And he said to them, and that is, a promise. And he said, years ago, I made a promise to this woman in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I plan to honor that vow I made before her to the day that she dies. I want to play a couple minute recording from the resignation speech that he gave at Columbia 
and then we'll just go on here. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me, and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Muriel's condition would deteriorate because of the Alzheimer's to the point where she no longer recognized Robertson. She needed to be in diapers 24-7. And at that point, his friends came to him once again and said, basically, Robertson, enough is enough. Put her in a nursing home and get on with your life. But again, McQuilkin refused to abandon her. And so for 13 years, he bathed her and fed her, changed her diapers. And for much of those years, she didn't even know who he was anymore. I think this is a picture of God's commitment to us in his promises. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look at how David responded to these promises, and we'll just close here in just a minute. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. And there's no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. 
And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the Lord and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What David is saying is, because of your promise to me, I now have confidence to come to you in prayer and ask the things that I need in my life because I know that your commitment to me is unconditional and you are always for me and for my good. And that's the promise that God makes to us in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, is even with that promise, it doesn't mean it's always an easy life. We've been seeing that in the life of David, haven't we? And it was true in Robertson Mill Quicklin's life as well. Around the same time that his wife was slowly dying of dementia, his son Bob died in a diving accident right off the shores of Lake Michigan because of a faulty diving suit. And this is what Robertson Mill Quicklin would say about all the tragedy that he faced in his life. By 1992, the blows of life had left me numb my dearest slipping from me, my eldest son snatched away in a tragic accident, my life's work abandoned at its peak. I didn't hold it against God, but my faith could better be described as resignation. The joy had drained away. The passion and my love for God had frozen over. I was in trouble. Of course, the passion of his love for me had never cooled. Even in the darkest hours when I felt my grit slipping and was in danger of sliding into the abyss of doubt. What always caught me and held me was the vision of God's best loved, pinioned in a criminal execution in my place. How could someone who loved me that much let anything hurt me without cause? As I watch her brave descent into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I always loved. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. Let's pray. What makes David so great? Why are we spending months studying the life of this man? Again, it's not because he stands before us as some paragon of virtue or because of some great thing that he ever did in his life. But David represents all of us in the story of redemption where God says to him, I have chosen you unconditionally because of my grace. I make a promise to you and all of your descendants. Never will I leave you or forsake you. And the way that all of these promises would be fulfilled was through the cross of Jesus Christ who died for our sins 
so that we could have peace with the living God. I don't know. I think about Robertson McQuilkin's life as he says, watching his wife that he loves, who was so vivacious, vivacious and feisty, now cannot even use a toilet properly and drools and giving up a career at its peak and burying a son because of somebody else's fault. And he says, this is my life. But in that all, what Robertson McCookin could see is God was still there all along with him, loving him and caring for him. And as he says, if my God would nail his own son to the cross, I must...